problem facing people at many levels of business is how to make time for a work life and a personal life. Do you find that one seems to keep getting in the way of the other? This is the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Even if you're not involved in the business world, you'll have a lot to gain by tuning in to today's show. Now, here is your host, Rick Morris. And welcome to another Friday edition of the Work-Life Balance. So excited to have everybody along. I've got a really, really fun show uh, planned for today. I uh, appreciate uh, all of the uh, people reaching out and everything uh, for, from last week. I uh, appreciate all the messages on social media. Um, uh, talking about Barb Stegman and, and uh, that show, she was, she was incredible. Uh, my guest here uh, has, has a lot to live up to, and I think he's uh, prepared <laughs> for the course. So we're going to get right into it. Uh, this gentleman is an artist who brings a little bit of everything to the table. I mean, he's an actor, a singer. He's appear, uh, appeared on stage in musicals such as Avenue Q, Next to Normal, Spring Awakening, The Who's Tommy, which is an award-winning uh, turn is Big Bopper in uh, Buddy, the Bu- Buddy Holly story. I saw that one uh, recently. He also served as a series creator, co-executive producer, head writer, and actor on the San Diego-based sketch comedy television series The House, which we're going to talk about today on the show. He's produced that on virtually a non-existent budget. I think he said something like 50 bucks. But it ran for eight seasons, becoming the longest-running sketch comedy show of its type. And it garnered a small but dedicated cult following, as well as back-to-back honors for outstanding regional production with two telly awards. This led to a sold-out live show and a short film, Geek Sex, which was a top video on the site, Funny or Die. I could continue to go on and on and on, but he is a writer, he's a personality, he's a speaker. He was on VH1's World Series of Pop Culture. He prides himself on being the original Shazam to his family and friends. And he's also combined this lifelong passion for cartooning and humor into a commission-based business that specializes in animation-style pieces from everything from portraits, T-shirts, greeting cards, signage, and murals. It's got a podcast uh, that he's had for about six years. And, I mean, just, again, kind of a master of all trades. And we met through uh, kind of a a common fandom as well. So let's bring him on to the show, Anthony Donovan. How are you doing, Anthony? What's up, buddy? Thanks for having me on. The original AD is what we call you. <laughs> I like that. That's quite a bio, though, dude. Like, I, I don't even know where to start to unpack that. So I think we just go <laughs> a little bit about a little bit. But what we said, um, just you know, how we met. We met through uh, the MMC Thirty reunion. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, very, very uh, fortuitous meeting there. Uh, because, well, and and it was funny. I think we we shared that commonality of kind of getting our start on that show behind the scenes. Yep. And that was the first place that I had ever done like background work and stuff like that. And when I, when I came to the mouse club, when I first moved to Florida, I was almost 18 years old and I sat in a taping and I loved the show for years and I was excited to see that. But once I saw the set and the crew and seeing the process of how that all happens, I just became so swept up in it. The Mouseketeers almost became like secondary to me. I would wanted to go there every day and learn everything. And when we met, you had told me that you were doing some, some camera work on the show. And yeah, I was uh, an intern. So I, I got to work on about four or five shows a season doing various tasks. Like they, they were letting us do all of the production, but like I get to hold the camera or I get to, to be on the soundboard during a recording session, things like that. Yeah. It was a great place to learn. And I, almost everybody that's come from that show has echoed that sentiment. Oh, it's a phenomenal place to learn. And, and not only that, but um, the, the talented people that have come out of it has turned into our family and, and people yeah. that we support. And we were just out in LA together in February mm-hmm. at a fantastic event. Um, you know, Demi Moore was there, uh, Richard Dreyfus, Brian yep. Tracy, and then of course our great Mickey Mouse club. What a lineup. What a yeah. lineup. <laughs> that was a, that was a great all, weekend. <laughs> all capped by, by DJ Damon. Yes. <laughs> Damon Pampolina, Mr. Damon Pampolina. Oh my goodness. And no, nobody can rock a stage like he. In fact, the the other uh the other DJ got jealous and cut off his set. I uh, I know, I know. And I, I was a little disappointed because they I, I think he was just getting started. I I don't think he was warmed up yet. That was the creepy thing, but anyway. Um talk to me about uh the, the show The House, though. That sounds like a really fun ride. And uh, you know, are you still together with the guys? Tell me tell me how that all came to be and how you got that show produced. Okay, well, when I, I had always planned on being an animator for the Walt Disney Studios. That was my goal. And then the Mickey Mouse Club happened and it completely changed my life. And when the show got canceled, I hadn't even thought about college or anything like that. And I went to film school and I decided I wanna work in television. 
I want to write comedy. I want to create my own series. And I thought, well, you know, I could go to, go to school, move to Los Angeles, pound the pavement, become one of many who are trying to make it happen. And then I thought, what if I were to just do it now? Like in my, my young naivete ambition, I was like, I'm ready now. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> so uh, my best friend who, I, who we met in college, she was big into directing and choreography. And when we decided to, after, after I finished school, the plan was to move to Los Angeles and, you know, in about a month, become rich or famous. This was my plan. And uh, yeah, of course, <laughs> gotta love being 22. And so we came out here and we stopped in San Diego and we realized we were out of money. Like we hadn't, we had come out with no place to live, no job lined up. We didn't know a soul. And so we were like, all right, well, let's just get our, get on our feet here. And then after a couple of months, we were like, you know what? We could produce the show here. Like, and back then this was before the age of YouTube or social media or any kind of widespread user-friendly internet. We used the resources we had in front of us, which at the time was public access. And, uh, you know, if, if you remember back in the day, it was local cable. Anyone could go in there and you basically had to show you knew how to use the equipment and you had to have a show schedule. And I had come up with this show and I had written a bunch of sketches and I was fresh out of film school. So I knew how to use every piece of equipment in that studio. And I went in there and I got certified in no time. And it was all on a volunteer basis. And we started to just kind of cast the show and brought in some local actors and we were, as my bio said, on a nearly non-existent budget. And, and Amy Meredith and I, as my producing partner, we found every way, we had to use every ounce of our creativity to build sets, to costume the show, to, I mean, you name it, just finding different corners to film in. And I was like, I was like a camera stuntman at one point with an ENG pack on my shoulder and I'm like hanging from a staircase trying to get an aerial shot. And it's like stuff that you would, I would never tell a young filmmaker to do, but, but it sounded there. cool at the time. Of course. And, and I can hang from I was, that staircase, you know, of course. I was like, sure, I can do that. Give me the camera. We're good. We're good. Insurance. No, I'm fine. I'm in perfect. Yeah, sure. And uh, you know, uh, we were just trying to think of how to get it done and we would film the show. I would cut the show and it took us about eight months to finally get a finished pilot that was ready to air where all the pieces were in place. And when we finally did it, it was like, okay, well now I guess we have to fill, fill out a whole season. So that was really where I started to get my bearings of writing a series and the demands of that. And it, one thing just led to another and people, I was so consumed with getting the show made, I didn't think anyone would actually watch it. And as it turns out, they did. And they would correspond with us and send us emails. And before you knew it, we we had a following. So we just kind of built on that and kept it going. So what was what was the point of the the, the show, the sketch show? What was kind of the the theme of it? Um, well, we had, we had three standing rules. The first was I didn't want to do any political humor. I did not want to do any recurring characters. And I wasn't big on doing parodies. I wanted to do standalone, just funny sketches. And they were very silly and we incorporated music and we would sing on the show and that kind of stuff. And kind of like a classic variety show. But that, I mean, that's essentially the story of Kentucky Fright Theater, right? I mean. Uh, kind of, yeah. I, I guess we were like a late nineties version of that. <laughs> yeah, Cause those guys got together and just filmed a bunch of stuff, whatever mm -hmm. was in their head. Uh, which they started as sketch comedy, then they moved to that film, which Kentucky Fried Movies, right? Classic, is one of the best films. It stands the test of time to me. But then, of course, they graduate to Airplane and Police Squad. One of them goes and does Ghost, and the other ones mm -hmm. stay in the in the stupid lane. But that's exactly how they got started. And, and you know, I, I I think in the age of YouTube, though, in, in those areas, that's how a lot of these people are getting started. Just figure it out. You think you've got it? Let's go. Exactly. And I, I also like the fact that it is so accessible now because now it's purely a creative question. Now it's who can think of the best bit, not, you know, how are you ever going to get this seen by people? Yeah, not, not necessarily what's the best produced show, right? What's right. just really funny. And, and that was a big thing. Like we didn't wait, like we didn't wait till it was perfect. I had something to say and I was hungry to say it. So we just did it. Well, I, I imagine there's a tremendous amount of lessons that you that you learn from that. And I think we can get into some of those. But we're going to keep talking to Anthony here. I want to get into podcasting with you uh, in the next segment as well. Just yeah. you know, 
what's a good podcast? Why is it good? Po-? I need to know because I, I have one and, you know, I don't know if it's any good or not. Um, <laughs> and then we'll talk about, uh, you know, social media, all that kind of stuff. So we, we're really just going to cover the gamut here with somebody uh, that I respect in the business and, and would love to hear from. So we hope that you'll continue with us as well. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break right here. You're listening to Rick Morris and the Work-Life Balance. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the Work-Life Balance on this Friday afternoon, meeting with Anthony Donovan, who basically, uh, I think it's just does it all is what's on the bottom of his business card, uh, but certainly an entertainment uh, uh, powerhouse. So we were talking about, you know, you putting together this sketch comedy shows on a, a, a nothing budget. Uh, but then, you know, a lot of people will say today that it's almost impossible to day and age. What do you, what do you say to that? Well, I think because I hear that a lot from people in the comedy community, and I think that regardless of what kind of business you're in, whether it's entertainment, whether it's business, whether it's art or writing, you have to get used to the concept of change. Nothing is going to stay the same. I've been in this business for more than 25 years, and there are things that I wrote in my early 20s that I would die if anyone now saw. You understand there's an ebb and flow to how these work, and when it comes to comedy, if you constantly punch down and cater to the lowest common denominator, you're going to get the audience you deserve. You have to understand that you don't talk down to your audience, and You have to respect the fact that an audience is giving your attention. I've seen so many comedians bomb because they go out there with the mindset that they have control of that situation. You have to listen to your audience. And if you don't, you know, and especially for me, I'm 44 now, and a lot of these comics are younger, you have to understand that your audiences are going to get younger too. And it's up to you to grow and change with the times. And I think that if your stuff is good, and you're not punching down, you will find a way. I think that's a cheap excuse to say you can't write comedy now. Yeah, and, and I totally agree with the punch. I love, I love intellectual humor, just humor that, that even like that has the, the, they almost have quadruple meanings when they drop the joke, where it just kind of oh, yeah. keeps hitting you and hitting you and hitting you afterwards. It's one of my favorite uh, jokes to have. What's interesting, though, and, and I want to come back to is, is the amount of change. Yeah. Um, and I'm surprised by the creativity by a lot of the people. So for instance, you know, I, I enjoyed Vine when that, when that came yeah. out, you got six seconds. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, so the, in fact, uh, my favorite was uh, uh, Bat Dad. Uh, Bat. The, the guy, the, the guy that had a Batman mask on and, uh-huh. uh, would scare his wife and scare his kids and just mm-hmm. do silly stuff. But he had six seconds, you know, and it was entertaining every single time, mm-hmm. um, which we're seeing kind of that being revitalized through TikTok. Yes. So, Every time you kind of see this this platform change, you've got to change the way you deliver the comedy as well as how you do that. So how do you stay on top of all of that as, as a comedian or sketch writer or somebody who wants to stay in entertainment? 
Well, I think the the key is not only keeping on top with where everything's going, but seeing how you fit into that because it's still your voice and you want to make sure that you're not tailoring everything you do to fit the fashions of the day. You want to kind of walk that fine line of doing what you do, but in a way that's palatable to multiple audiences. Yeah, I'm seeing people like on TikTok get a new career. I, Meaning, yes and no. <laughs> I think uh, no. I'm saying I'm saying in general, in terms of uh, viral capacity. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, said Donnie, I can't remember his name. But he's he plays just a dumb redneck on there, and he's funny as mm-hmm. all get out. Um, on YouTube, it's not so funny. If you hear him for 10, 11, 12 minutes, it's not as funny. Right. But those little one minute clips that he he can throw down on TikTok is really really taken off for his career. And there is an art to that. And uh, actually, if anything, moving because we we were still on the air when kind of we started, we were feeling pressure from our viewers to put a lot of our stuff on YouTube. And, you know, I in my younger days in my sketch comedy, I was very long winded as a writer. And I had to learn how to get more succinct with what I wanted to say and deliver my message and deliver the jokes in a quicker way. So that's that was one of the ways I adapted. And I think there is a skill to brevity. (laughs) I think, you know. The, to get out there. And so things like TikTok, a lot of people may look at it uh, superficially and think, oh, well, anybody can get up there and be funny in six seconds. But I'm like, have you ever tried that? Right. <laughs> it's hard. So your, so your setups took a long time to get to the, the end of the punchline, essentially. Well, and not necessarily a long setup, but it was just, I, I said in three sentences what I could have said in 10 words. And how's that working now for you? Well, I mean, what I find is that it depends on the venue. If I am going to be doing a hosting event where I go up there and I essentially do stand up, you feel the room. And if they're with you, you can take a little bit longer and you can dig a little deeper into some bits. And if they're not really feeling you and they're just waiting for the next performer, then you find a way to get around that quickly. Uh, So I think, you know, whereas if I'm doing something for a video, I tend to go a little quicker. I tend to do a little more succinct on that because that's kind of the attention span of that. So it depends on the venue. And so how do we think is this is changing the consuming side of the habit as well? Oh, man, I, I, I die a little on the inside when I hear people binging shows. <laughs> and maybe, maybe that's my age talking because I understood in the thick of it eight seasons of what it takes to produce series television. There is so much to it and there is so much blood, sweat and tears in the work of thousands of people. And it takes months. And the idea that something like that could, you know, months worth of work can be consumed in an afternoon. And then a viewer is looking at you going, okay, well, when, when's the new one coming? Yeah. Like that, that gives me like heart palpitations. <laughs> What's the uh, show Portlandia? Have, have you seen yeah. that? Uh-huh. They do that with that uh, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. It's so well done, right? Cause it's so iconic. The dun dun from Battlestar Galactica mm-hmm. and they binge watch it and they, they seek out to go find Ronald Moore to make him write more episodes. It's true. I mean, I mean, obviously that was a very, you know, hyper uh, you know a lot of hyperbole going on there but it's kind of how it is yeah <laughs> yeah and, and why can't you produce something why, why does it take you know nine months to to produce a season that i can watch in two days right that's exactly. kind of the and mentality it, you know like i'm uh, a while back i'm in the car with my niece who's 17 years old a song comes on the radio and she's like i don't want to hear this it's old and it's a song it's been out for three months <laughs> yeah like, like where is your attention span girl <laughs> So what that allows, you know, and, and uh, uh, Damon Pampolini has got a podcast coming out called The Tongue Lashing. We were talking about um, while the ease of the entry is really good, you know, specifically around music. You brought up music. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. So the ease of entry you used to have a bunch of suits determine what was going to be popular, what wasn't. Right. And you know, now we have this beautiful uh, method of people getting, you know, Justin Bieber being found on YouTube. You've got Spotify mm-hmm. where you can just put stuff up there and hope it goes viral. Um, but that means we have this abundance of quantity now yes. and we're lacking some of that quality that, that some of the control provided. Well, and, and one of the other things that, that irks me about that way, especially when it comes to music is I spent a lot of time studying music law in school. Uh, and I understood that there are things that happen in the music industry that are standard forms of business practice that are literally illegal in other forms of business. And I know that when you have people on there, like Spotify is wonderful for exposure, but the artists aren't making a lot of money. Uh, and the, the model has in a lot of ways not shifted in favor of the artists. So I think the fact that it has become so consumable, I think, I think there's a plus and a minus to it. 
I think so too, right? You you just said it perfectly. So if we look at two of the biggest forms of of media that I can recall just being younger, that was books Mm -hmm. and that was music. Yep. Obviously movies and TV. We'll we'll push those aside. But I'm just talking about in forms of media that now, and I mean, when you got that music contract, that was huge. Oh, yeah. Right? And, uh, you know, my first book went through the traditional p- publishing route and I got a nice advance to, to mm. write it and, you know, royalties that still come in. Uh, now, you know, everybody's doing create space and, and, you know, I can use auto tune on my computer and, and yeah. make a song and drop it out there. But there is, that just has sucked all the money from the best artists. So they've had to adapt. Yeah. Right. So it, what I what I love is um, the. Um, it's not only the the opportunity or the the challenge, but how do you rise through all of that noise now? What what would you suggest to kind of somebody who's who's just getting into this and wanting to be a comedy writer? How do they begin to rise above? I would say the first thing you need to know is be solid in the reason why you want to do this um, and find your voice as a comedy writer. Uh, And then once you do that and you kind of dive in, then it's up to you to navigate what's going to work for you and what's not. And I, I understand, I understand, believe me, I understand being hungry and needing that gig and, you know, taking whatever you can. But I've seen a lot of young writers get screwed out of a lot of property intellectually. Um, and you, you have to kind of be careful what you're getting into. And I think if you want to take your stuff to social media, that is a great way to be seen. But, I would also advise don't empty the gun uh, <laughs> because, you know, you want to make sure that you're, like you said, quality versus quantity. You want to make sure that you're, you're keeping your content coming, but make it good content. And, you know, don't, don't throw it all out on the floor right away. You build what you're doing. So knowing background in entertainment law, or at least studying entertainment law, as well as everything that you've kind of done, what's kind of one of the biggest things you had to, to, to undo or try to get out of um, when, b- because of that, it was, it was yours. It was clearly yours. Somebody was trying to siphon it or, or take it away. Have you ever been in that situation? Um, actually I was, I wrote uh, an industrial video uh, back in the day and I had a co-writer working with me and uh, I was really the writer and she was kind of the idea person and everything was kind of done on a handshake Uh, even though it was a paid job with the production company. And, you know, we did our thing and I wrote the script and everything. I delivered it on time. Everything was great. And I got a call from the producers saying, hey, we need you to come down here and take a look at the script. And I I, I took a look at the hard copy of the script and she had taken my name off of it. Oh, wow. Uh, And it was my completely unaltered 100% me script. And I didn't take those measures to protect myself there was no paperwork. There was no discussion. I, it was in my early 20s. And it was just one of those things. Again, I was just so happy to get the gig, but I didn't know to protect myself. And so that was probably, that was the biggest lesson I got where it's like, oh, okay. So, you know, yeah, there's friends. Yeah, there's business, but you need to make sure you handle your business first. And there's no, there's really, rarely is there friends in this business. Let's that was another thing I learned. <laughs> so, so what's the biggest kind of horror story you have just in general, the business? I mean, largely, largely, I knock on wood, have been very lucky with the stuff that I've done uh, that I haven't been taken to the cleaners too hard. <laughs> but, you know, you, you hear about it all the time. And I've, I've had many friends that have gotten just completely hosed because they didn't read the fine print, because they didn't take the time to research who they were working with and you know, not a specific one doesn't come to mind, but just a general overall feeling of, you know, you, it only takes one time for you to see what can happen if you don't protect yourself. That's scary. That's yeah. scary, isn't it? Especially as a content creator, like you want to, yeah, it's, it's hard. And I, I have joked many times because I, I don't know if you've heard Pete Davidson from SNL recently did a thing where he had had a show and he gave out like non-disclosure agreements to the audience. Wow. And so they won't like take his jokes. And, and, you know, my first thought was, well, a man, a man worried about people stealing his ideas is a man of limited ideas. But at the same time, it's like, this is, this is where it's gotten now. 
funny, isn't it Chappelle? Is it Chappelle that makes everybody put their phones in a tote before they? Um, I think Chappelle did that, yeah. Yep. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's starting kind of, to become becoming, a new thing too. Yeah, that's kind of becoming a common practice. And and I get that because not so much of the protection of the material, but you know, that's that's the show and you don't want to cheapen the experience by having that be, you know, what if you go up there and you have a bad night, you know, and then the world gets to see you on a bad night. And uh, having been having had a bad night as a comic, I know how painful that is. <laughs> yeah, but there's also, I mean, there's a there there's points of surprise or elements of surprise that can be designed really well on the show. We we I actually talked about this with Lindsay Alley. Mm-hmm. You know, she she has put a lot of time and effort into her beautiful you know show that she does, the Blood Sweat mm-hmm. Mouseketeers. Yep. And then you know, the next thing you know, somebody's streaming that entire performance that she did for an exclusive audience. Yeah. You know, on online, and and there's some jokes in there that. It's not so much protection of material, but it cheapens the opportunity for an audience to experience that for the first time. Oh, absolutely. And it's, and it, it's never the same. Seeing it online is never the same as the experience, particularly with comedy, is seeing it in person. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, well, there's that. And the, the other thing is like when I watch uh, like America's Got Talent and they have like full choirs mm-hmm. and it never oh, yeah. sounds good on TV, but man, no. will I get chill bumps if, mm-hmm. if I'm in that audience and hear them hit some of those notes. Yep. Right. I literally get chill bumps, but it it just doesn't translate. I got a chance to see a couple of tapings and there was one choir I just loved and I was telling my family about it and it comes up on on uh, the show and it sounded awful coming through the yeah. TV. And I was like, that was so not what I heard. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, we're going to take another break right here, but I do want to give you a chance just to so I, I don't hit you cold. But you you are a self-professed pop culture geek. Correct? Oh, yeah, for sure. Guru? All right. So I found a quiz that is supposed to be 15 of the pop culture things that most people get wrong. And we're going to see how Anthony answers that when we come back after break and listen to the Rick Morris and the work-life balance. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the Work-Life Balance on this Friday afternoon. We've got self-professed, uh, the, the, they actually call you Shazam. Is that uh, is that fair? Yes, I get a lot of phone calls from my friends being like, "Hey, who does this song?" <laughs> there we go. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna warm you up so I don't hit you <laughs> with a call. I'm gonna give you a warm up. Who 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 uh, performs the song of my lead in music? Uh, that would be the party. That's right. All right, that's easy. <laughs> that one, that one was uh, easy. Uh, who was the first American Idol? Uh, Kelly Clarkson. Uh, and uh, this Kardashian sibling is the one without a K name. Oh man, um, um, Chloe? No, she's a K. Uh, uh, is that the one named Kaching? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Because they just make money. That's their job. That is their job. And and look, God love them for it. Uh, it's <laughs> it's Rob. 
Oh, Rob. Okay, see, I was thinking sisters. I forgot uh, the that's boy. That's the point. See, I now I'm starting, to, I'm starting to get going now. Here we M go. Much like their mom probably has at some point. Um, oh, this one's good. Uh, finish the TV theme song. Oh, okay. I want to be the very best like no one ever was. I want to be the very best like no one ever was. I don't know. To catch them is my real test. To train them is my cause. I don't even know what that is. Is that All the greatest right. American hero? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Oh, okay. <laughs> is it Pokemon? No, it's Pokemon. There it is. Our oh, engineer, our engineer oh, dude. Hey, jump in, man. You're good. I'm old. All right. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, sometimes you want to go? Oh, where everybody knows your name. Cheers. There it is. All right. Now we're really warming up. So Some, here we go. Sung by Gary Portnoy, who, who also sang the theme song to Punky Brewster. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yep. <laughs> So which Star Wars movie does the line, Luke, I am your father, come from? That would be The Empire Strikes Back, 1980. No, that line never appeared in any Star Wars movie. The actual quote Oh, because he is, doesn't say no, Luke. He said, Obi-Wan never told father. you what happened to your father. <laughs> he told me plenty. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. There we go. Okay. There it is. Uh, who was the first Disney princess? Uh, Snow White. Uh, it's Persephone. It was in the Silly, Silly Symphony shorts. Yeah. Yeah, Goddess of Spring. Oh, and a Disney question. Wow. I know. That was good. I've been shamed hard. Uh, first actor to portray James Bond on screen. Uh, it wasn't Connery. It was, um, oh my gosh. My, the co-hosts of my podcasts are screaming at me right now listening to this. I know they are. George Lazenby? <laughs> uh, Barry Nelson. Barry he appeared Nelson. in a 54 made-for-TV movie. What? See, these are the hard ones. They are hard. What is what is the uh, what is the name of the first Harry Potter book? Uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, or as it was called in London, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Oh, can't throw Harry Potter past him. <laughs> uh, what TV program aired the first interracial kiss? Uh, was that the Jeffers? No, no, it was Star Trek. Uh, it's credited. But there's actually one called You and Your Small Corner, which is a play aired in the UK. That's okay. not fair. So Star Trek wins. I won't, okay. I won't be that hard on you. Um, and then who originally sang the song, I Love Rock and Roll? Oh, gosh. It wasn't Joan Jett. It was, um, was it Tommy James? Uh, uh, he did. Uh, no, but it's a British band called The Arrows. The Arrows. Okay. I, I think that's good. I think I... Uh, I, I think I tortured you enough, but you, you certainly know, <laughs> you proved your metal. You know, and it's funny. I always have friends who who run to me if, if with something to stump me, and of course it does. And when you know they make fun of me for not knowing something, I always tell them the same thing. I'm like, I did not get on the World Series of Pop Culture because I know everything about pop culture. I got on because I know more than you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so describe that experience, going out for that show, what it was like to film it. You know, talk well, a little bit about that. I, I went out with Derwood Murray and Amy Meredith, who, who are two of the three other hosts of my podcast, The House of Pop Culture. Uh, and we, we went to LA and there was a written test and there were 10,000 people. And some people had had like shirts made at that point and stuff. And we did the written test and we passed it. And then they brought us in to see how well we did on camera. And they gave us some questions. We played a preliminary round and we won. Uh, and then we played a second round in LA and we actually lost and the team that beat us wound up on the show, but they called us and said that the producers had decided that we would be one of the 12 teams on there because I guess we were really, I'm sorry. Uh, and they decided to have us on the show because we did really well and we were good on camera and we were entertaining. So we, uh, we went out there and that was kind of my first experience as an adult being on national television with people on the internet having opinions. <laughs> Talk about that though. Let well, when I got, when we got to the show and we were shooting, we were on the second season, the first season champions, who was a team called El Chupacabra. I met my friend Jody Roth, who was part of that team. And I asked her, you know, what advice do you have for me once this aired? And she thought for a minute and she said, don't read the comments. And I thought, Oh, that's probably pretty good advice. I'm not going to follow it, of course. I read every no. single printed word about us. Uh, and I had the greatest moment as a result. After, after our show aired, 
there was a there was a message board because that was how we did in the 2000s. There was a message board called Survivor Sucks, and there was a user on there. Her name was Cindy Dindy 76, and I will never forget this as long as I live. She was talking about us on television, and she said she said, "I didn't like the team that beat them, but that guy with the mohawk, who by the way was me, she's like I hated him so much I wanted to drop kick my television." <laughs> and, that was the greatest moment of my life up until that point because at that moment I ceased being a real person with thoughts and feelings who exists in the world and I was just one of those guys on TV and that is all I have ever wanted to be. <laughs> I, was, I was just an image on television presented for her immediate approval or disapproval and I thought it was great. If I knew who she was, I would send her flowers every year. Yeah, so Seth Godin, who, who wrote uh, the book Tribes, and he's a marketing genius. I love Seth. Mm -hmm. But he said, if you're not making somebody mad, then you're not doing something right. Isn't that the truth, though? I it mean, is. And, hey, you know, Prince once said, it's better to be overlooked. It's better to be looked over than overlooked. Wow, there you go. So there you go. Hit me back with the pop culture there, you guru. I get it. <laughs> I went business, you went pop culture, you went. That's, um, I, that's just how I do. <laughs> <laughs> So, so taking that experience, right, and all that stuff, you decide to create this podcast. Talk to us yep. about the podcast and, and what that whole experience is like and what you think makes a, a really good podcast. Well, it was important for us to kind of go off the heels of that because we had some attention on us at the time because of VH1. And we thought, all right, well, let's, let's get on there. And there was, a, there was a fourth guy, our friend Joe Reese, who in himself, in, of himself is a pop culture maven, and he kind of trained us for the show. So we had Joe come on with us, and it's the four of us. And we called it the House of Pop Culture because all of us were involved in the TV show, The House. So we thought, let's continue on that. And basically because we, we have such useless knowledge and we vamp so well with each other, we, we do a lot of top five lists. Like the minute the movie High Fidelity came out, so many of my friends looked oh. at Jack Black's character and was like, dude, that is Anthony for days. <laughs> and, and it's true. And, and a lot of my friends are like that. So we started doing these lists and people have opinions, man. They will interact with us and we ask for show ideas. And, you know, it, it gets pretty heated with, with the exchanges and it's really funny, but we, we try to keep it incredibly silly. And we, we do a lot about movies, about TV, um, about reality television. We, we, and then we tried to, to kind of expand our focus this past year with talking about some other things that weren't necessarily as funny. Like we did, a, we did an episode about the Me Too movement and about Harvey Weinstein and what, and, you know, what happens when our, our heroes of pop culture disappoint us and they break our hearts. So that was a really interesting discussion that our viewers were surprisingly receptive to. Like they were cool letting us put aside the jokes for a week and be serious about something. So that was really neat. And I mean, Rona Bennett, who we both know and love, she was so generous to come on the show and we had a great talk with her. And um, yeah, we, we've really expanded it to the point where we talk about just about everything pop culture related. That's fantastic. So what do you think really goes into making that uh, a success though, beyond just, you know, being silly and telling jokes? What, what, if somebody's wanting to start a podcast, what advice do you give them? I would tell them, make sure you have something to talk about. Uh, I would tell them because a lot of people, and this is, this kind of goes, this kind of calls back to that whole public access YouTube type thing where everybody now has, everybody now has the resources to do it. I've known a lot of people that are funny in real life, but they are not actors. And when you put a script on them, it doesn't work. I know a lot of people that are funny and talkative in real life, but they don't know how to present content behind a mic. And that makes a big difference. I've heard a lot of people who are great individuals get on a podcast and they don't have a lot to talk about. What they're saying makes absolutely no sense to the people on the other end of that. You have to have something that can be received. It has to be consumable. And you know, a lot of inside jokes with your friends are great, but you have to open it up and understand you're talking to somebody. And you know, understand how to present, how to talk, no ums and ahs, and have some idea of what you want to say. That's the most important thing. And you know, open it up for things that people want to listen to and talk about. You ideally, the best podcasts are the ones where you want to jump in and start talking as a listener. And that's been one of the greatest compliments we've had about the House of Pop Culture is when people hear us and it's like they're having a conversation with four of their friends. 
So basically everything I don't do. Okay, I got that. <laughs> I wrote, wrote all the list down. Uh, your show is listen, great, buddy, first of all. Listen to people. Okay, don't do that. Um, <laughs> encourage people. No inside jokes. I can't <laughs> Pretty much everything I do. Okay. Oh, uh, stop. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but honestly, though, it's, it, it, it truly is. First of all, a lot of people think, oh, we're going to go start a podcast and I'm going to get all this advertising revenue. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. wish. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But at, at the same time, so it has to be something that you're passionate about that, oh, yeah. that, that you would do even if nobody listened because yep. sometimes they won't. And even though that uh, you're not going to generate any money because it really doesn't generate any kind of revenue. No, we're very fortunate to have Patreon and, and our patrons are great and they help cover the overhead, which is not a lot, but none of us are getting rich off of it. Sure. Sure. So, uh, so really, uh, to to me, the, when people ask me about podcast, I, I say I ask, are are you ready to serve your audience? Yeah. Because if if it's about you, if you think you got something great to say, then nobody cares. Let's just be <laughs> honest about that. Nobody really cares. What they want to know is what's in it for me, and how can you serve? You know, my what's my entertainment level, or what am I going to learn? Exactly. So we're going to take our final break here. When we come back, we're we're going to find out, uh, have in touch with Anthony, how he can come to uh, your organization, shake things up, all that kind of stuff. I, I'm now his agent, so you have to contact us to them. And <laughs> I've right. said it now, it's on media, so therefore it's done. But no, we'll find that out and we'll ask the question we ask every one of our guests uh, in the final segment. But we'll do that right after the break. You're listening to Rick Morris on the Work-Life Balance. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the final segment of the work-life balance with our man Anthony Donovan. And, and you know, when when I do this show, I, I have a, a pre-show packet I send out to our guests so we can ask some questions, get to know them a little bit uh, if if I haven't met them before. And uh, I always ask for possible topics, and you know, Anthony sent me several topics, and I chose one called "There Is No Such Thing as the Right Time." And funny enough, I haven't asked a single question about that, Anthony. So, what do we mean by that? And uh, what what do you mean by "There Is No Such Thing as the Right Time"? I have encouraged. I've encountered this so much in my life and career. Is that one of the things that, as a creator, we tend to to think, or artsy type people, or really anybody, is if you want to do your project, you think, "Oh, well, I can't do this right now." I don't, I don't have A, B, and C. This, this situation isn't perfect. We don't have the right money. We don't have the right people, this, that, and the other. And I, if, I had, if I had stopped myself from pulling the trigger on every artistic endeavor that I wanted to do because of that, I would have never gotten anything done. Uh, they say, the, zero, they say the, the most difficult part is from zero to start. And that really is the most important. It's the truest thing. And I think if you have something that you want to say and a project that you want to do, you know, try to get your ducks in a row, but the most important thing is to do it. 
my team and I had no business starting a television show back then and going out there and just winging it and being first timers. And five seasons later, we won a major industry award for our little dog and pony show that because we did it, we didn't listen to, you know, the voices in your head telling you you shouldn't or even the other people who were just like, you shouldn't do this. I had something to say. I wanted to share something with the world. I wanted to share my comedy with the world and we did it. Uh, and, you know, same thing with a podcast or things like that. Make sure it's as good as it can be, but ultimately you got to come through with it. Yeah. And, and so one of my dear friends, Colin Ellis, uh, says that we do our best work on the edge of uncomfortable. Oh and yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. I ask people all the time why they haven't started this or haven't, you know, well, this is what I want to do. The biggest thing I, I think you probably hear like I do was I'm going to do a podcast. I, yep. I hear that all the time. And so the follow-up is, and when do you start, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's not I'm going to, but, I, but we've got to push ourselves to a little uncomfortable state where we do our best work. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's one piece at a time. Give yourself a deadline. For me, the best thing is always to tell another person because yes. I'm big on being impeccable with my word. And if I say to somebody, hey, I'm going to deliver this script to you on date, I'm going to do that. And uh, I'm going to get to that finish line. I, I did that. I have a whole, a whole season of a series written that I told Derwood Murray, one of the co-hosts of my show, I'm like, I'm going to give you this entire script on December 1st. And December 1st, he called me. I'm like, I'll, I'm in the car. I'm on my way. And I put it in his hands because you, that, that's the thing. Follow through, it, it, as they say, follow through is the superpower. Well, there's actually science behind that. So if, if you make a goal that is, is voluntary, and is is active that you you volunteered or shared that to to somebody mm -hmm. um you you will follow through uh, it, it's just it's, or you have the higher chance of following through um so when we do we do declare public of uh, personal goals uh, when i do coaching it's mm -hmm. it's what are you going what are you committing to me and when they when they say it to me then they don't want to show up you know the next week or the next month and and not have done it it's exactly it's a great way and it's not to say that, you know, the seven days leading up to that won't be me sitting in front of my laptop crying right. at four o'clock in the morning, yeah. cursing the heavens because my imagination chose not to show up to work that day, but I'm going to get it done. <laughs> but you, uh, you just said something really uh, important. It's something, you know, when I'm writing books and in, when I'm doing a lot of this stuff, there's just days where uh, you have seasons, seasons of creativity come and go. Oh, yeah. And so how do you kind of force? You know, and, and that's, a, that's a fine line. And I learned that from writing for series because, you know, we, we had an air date and we had to have something to shoot. And, uh, you know, you, you just kind of get in there and you, you, especially with writing, pound it all out. Do the, do the verbal diarrhea on the page and a lot of it's going to be terrible. But un, until you start doing it, you're not going to have anything to work with. So the key is just, even if it's bad, keep going. You will come back to it and you'll find something of value in it to build on. So what's some of the best advice you've ever received? I think uh, one of the best pieces of advice has always been never be afraid to ask for help. And that is something that has bit me in the rear end a number of times early on in my career. And sometimes I still have those moments where I, I kind of work it all out in my head and I'm overthinking it and I'm thinking, all right, well, this isn't going to work and this isn't going to work and I have to figure out a way. And, and I realize that there are people in the world that want to see you succeed and it's important for you to reach out to them because my favorite thing in the world is when I can be of service to somebody else. Sure. You know, and when somebody says, I wasn't going to call you, I'm like offended. I'm like, why wouldn't you call me? I can help you with this. And I forget that the rest of the world, it, it works the same way with other people. <laughs> right. Absolutely. You know, so don't be afraid to ask for help. You, you would be surprised what is waiting for you if you just state it out loud and you're ready to receive it. So how do people get in touch with you and, and are you available for hire and bookings and things like that? I, I sure am, uh, particularly in Southern California. I am available for speaking, stand up, the whole nine yards. Uh, the best way to get a hold of me is probably through social media. I'm Anthony Donovan on Facebook. Uh, you can also reach my official art page because I'm also a cartoonist on Anthony Donovan Art on Instagram. Uh, and you know, other than that, the, the best way is find one of those two things and, and shoot me a direct message. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Daboy, D-A-B-O-Y. <laughs> There's a long story behind that name, but, uh, yeah. I kind of want to hear it. Is that bad? <laughs> I, I kind of want to hear it. 
Well, you know, um, when I when my roommate and I we first moved here, we were like so Charles Dickens esque poor uh, that she she was at work one time and she had mentioned to a coworker, she's like, I gotta get home and feed the boy. And <sighs> apparently, her coworkers thought she had a baby, <laughs> and so that kind of became my nickname. And when I when I got on Twitter 150 years ago, uh, I decided to just use the name Du Bois. And what I found is that there's a lot of people out there that want that name. I've had people offer to buy that handle from me. And I'm like, wow. Why? <laughs> that's because yeah, I'm Du Bois. <laughs> that's du Bois. Why. And it's, it's easy to remember. It's easy to remember. Uh, any final words for the audience? Um, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for all the support. Thank you, Rick, for having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I, I hope to see many of you real soon. Absolutely. And you, any, any kind of, upcoming engagements maybe they can catch san diego um actually i have a show opening tonight <laughs> hey uh, i am in the musical sweet charity uh at the brooks theater in oceanside california uh and that runs through march 29th and musical theater will always be my first love so we'll be uh be doing that for the next month well we appreciate you coming on the show sharing your talents with us sharing your wisdom and uh allowing oh, me and to i, I almost ahead. forgot Check out the House of Pop Culture on Spotify and Stitcher and Podbean. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, if you didn't drop your own podcast, I thought we did a pretty good job earlier, but absolutely yeah. need to go subscribe <laughs> to that. But uh, we appreciate you being here and sharing everything with us, and, and uh, hopefully we'll get you on again uh, in the near future and find out what's going on in your world. I would love that. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, brother. So coming up next week, I think um, – uh, next week, it's going to be just me on the show. Uh, I'll share some topics, some updates, things that uh, I take that I take that back. Um, nope, no, I'm right. So next week, it's just me. And then we're going to go into replays as I do uh, the International Maxwell Conference in Orlando, Florida that I do twice a year. Uh, and probably one of my most popular shows is the recap from that event when we come back. So that that uh, is our upcoming shows and upcoming show schedule. Uh, otherwise, uh, we appreciate you hanging out with us, listening to the Work-Life Balance every Friday. Continue to listen to the Voice America Network for the next upcoming show. And until next Friday, we hope that you live your own Work-Life Balance. We'll talk to you then. Thank you for joining us this week. The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now that the weekend is here, it's time to rethink your priorities and enjoy it. We'll see you on our next show.